Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Uh, today we are talking to Gabe Elvery, one of the speakers and presenters at the forthcoming Playaway Festival. Gabe, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to meet you. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and what it is you do while you're speaking at Playaway? Sure. Um, so, at the moment, I'm currently a second-year PhD researcher at the University of Glasgow. Uh, technically, I'm in the School of Critical Studies doing English Literature, but my project is actually really a game studies project. Um, so we don't have like a game studies department, but I'm really lucky to work with supervisors who kind of know their stuff and I'm also involved with their games and gaming lab at the University of Glasgow as well. So that's really cool. And um, my project is um, looking at the fantastic in video games. So kind of thinking about how um, the fantasy worlds that we become immersed in, like what they say about the world in general and about us and about kind of different modes of play and things like that. That's fantastic. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued because far too often video games is cut off and isolated from other areas of academic research. And people tend to look at it as, as mere entertainment. Uh, with no redeeming social factors at all. So can you tell us a little bit more about it's, it, how you're using video games to, to reflect wider society? I think it's really great at the moment, actually, because there has been a, a shift slightly away from the moral panic um, mm -hmm. from before. So I think we're starting to see uh, video games in a kind of in a better light across the media now. Partly that's due to the way that we've been using them due to like the changing so social circumstances of the pandemic and things like that. But also it's actually because of um, game studies. So as a field, game studies is actually really pioneering um, interdisciplinary studies because when you when you study a video game there's no necessarily set way that you have to look at it we're kind of figuring out different ways so scholars from all over across disciplines um, generally people that love gaming are bringing their specialized knowledge to video games because there's, there's so many different types of video games so you can look at them from a historical perspective like looking at Assassin's Creed you can look at the Kerbal Space Program and think about um, astrophysics and things like that so I think like in in higher education in general there is a bit more of a movement towards um, interdisciplinarity and game studies is at the forefront of that because it's bringing together people from so many different fields. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very interesting because we have seven universities in Scotland that are producing game-related graduates, whether it's it's development, production design, um, and all of these areas. But it's the, the, the universities that are not producing games graduates who, who seem to be exploring these liminal areas and exploring uh, you know, the, the whole field of game studies in a lot of different ways. I'm fascinated by the fact that the, the Games and Gaming Lab is, is it the catalyst or is it, is that one of the reasons that, that you were able to, uh, you know, use Glasgow in the way that you are? Um, so yeah, my background is, is a bit of an, an odd one, I suppose, like most people doing game studies. Um, so the Games and Gaming Lab hadn't actually been established yet. I was doing my uh, my master's and my master's was in fantasy literature and studying literature I'd always been trying to write about video games but I didn't have the language for it I didn't have the vocabulary I didn't know that game study scholarship existed because you know it wasn't part of my course I was just trying to 
shoehorn in what I wanted to do into the learning. Um, and then I got really lucky because on the fantasy course that year, um, one of my supervisors, uh, Matt Sangster and uh, Matt Barr as well, came and um, came and like sat in and helped teach it. We had a fantasy across media course, and there was one week that was a game studies kind of thing. It was about fantasy video games. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> so it was really a case of, you know, like I was very lucky to kind of be in a place where it was starting to grow. And also there's a really good, um, they'd started the game studies reading group as well, which we've now grown into the kind of the Caledonian studies reading group. So while lockdown is on, we've actually been able to kind of network more and make friends with other scholars from you know all over like so edinburgh and dundee and we can just like every couple of weeks talk about some fun games and some theories to go along with them which is really fun so we're kind of building this community kind of from from the ground up yeah you see i find it i find it fascinating because i i've worked in video games for i'm embarrassed to tell you how many years in fact my age is becoming a running joke in the, the scottish games network podcast uh, but the industry has always seemed quite insular and, and very, very focused on um, content creation. And it's very rare to have those conversations or to find a space where you can discuss anything beyond the application of gaming. And the whole area of game studies is something I think that we've been not necessarily missing, but I don't think the wider gaming ecosystem has been aware of. So I would love an opportunity to help support it and bring it out into the, the wider Scottish gaming community because I think it's a really, really invaluable way of exploring games from a completely different perspective than making them, playing them or yeah. selling them. I think it's like um, really important as well that there's collaboration between kind of academics and developers especially and there's been some really exciting stuff going on with that um, so for example one of my colleagues organized a ludic literature uh, symposium which was one day of academic talks and another day was a mini game jam so we had those people in the same area collaborating and learning from each other and that was really exciting um, and I try and go to well like when I could um, go to like um, the like IGDA and things like that and uh, events with developers to, to have a chat with them and think about it. And part of my project, I'm kind of hoping to uh, collaborate with someone else that I know from Abate and to make a game actually using some of the theories that I'm looking at, which would be so exciting because, you know, I never thought like I could, I never thought I could study games. I never thought I could make one. Um, but there's a lot of complementary skills that, we, we can bring when we talk to each other. Um, and like I audited a computing science course to at the beginning of my PhD to understand the challenges that developers face as well. Because sometimes when you study something, it's very easy to pick things apart, but you it's also worth knowing all of the effort, all of the hard work and all of the complications that go into producing the thing itself. So it's, yeah, I think it's really important to kind of maintain that dialogue between these different sectors but it's not necessarily that much of a common thing yet yeah yeah it, it still certainly seems to be um a, a sort of an emerging mm. 
area of, of the gaming world. Yeah, I will just be, can I, I jump in on one if that's okay? Yes, of course. You were talking earlier on about how you you were doing your kind of masters in literature and you had the you know this feeling in the back of your head that you wanted to be kind of bringing your that framework to games or it was games that you were wanting to to be kind of researching in that way. So I I guess my question is kind of two parts. One, what why was it why do you think that you had that kind of inclination and to were there any particular games that had kind of drawn you towards that path um yeah it's really interesting i think because so much of what i study are things that i love and things that i enjoy and i think it's similar with um, a lot of researchers that you study something you become fascinated with it and then maybe it's not until later you figure it out so I've kind of been also asking myself that same question and having to work through that question um, to think about like why I'm studying, what I'm studying. And uh, that's something I, I explore in. I've got a, um, a blog, which I'll plug. <laughs> so that's, um, it's a hybrid nonfiction and it's kind of research narrative. And my personal experience is blended together um, because a lot of the time in academia, everything is like kept separate. So that was kind of, the personal way I'm exploring it. I think different games can become prominent at different points in your life. So there was this whole narrative around like, you know, gaming addiction and the moral panic. But actually a lot of studies have shown that it's not necessarily the game itself that's causing the thing that's causing overly playing it. It's like maybe there's other things that you're dealing with that actually the game is preferable to sorting through that so I mean like when I was I had like a, a bit of an operation a couple of years ago chronic pains and I remember playing Undertale during my recovery period and it's just such a hopeful little game and it's so skillfully done that I don't know just that you just become fascinated with things um, maybe hyperfixating hyper on things more than anything um, yeah it's interesting to i'm really interested in not just assuming people's experiences of games or not just assuming that their experience is the same as mine but my kind of methodology is going to use um things like steam reviews and comments and maybe hopefully at some point actually ask people about how they experience the games as well because that's just as important as how I experience them. I'm not, you know, just like some knowledgeable person. I, I want to, uh, as much as I have knowledge, I, I want to understand other people. And sometimes understanding other people is easier when you have something cool to talk about, like a video game. Again, again I think that that makes an awful lot of sense because there is a tendency, um, especially here in the UK, uh, less so, I think, than, than other countries, to still think of games as digital toys and therefore mostly aimed at children and very simplistic and again purely for entertainment but as we're all aware if you've played any kind of game that's uh, you know drawn you in for a, a long period of time your experience is entirely subjective and and your reaction to the game can be a absolutely at odds with you know everybody that you know who's, who's playing the same title and we, we've not had the We've not had the, the language, we've not had the terminology to really discuss this. Because again, it comes back to design, development, make the thing, play the thing, and and, and focus very much on, I guess, the, the, the commercial success rather than the, the 
cultural or social impact. Yeah, I think though as well that it's still really important to um, actually praise the place of games as leisure time because in this, uh, you know, we live in a society, but uh, in this kind of capitalist setup that we have, leisure time and enjoying yourself and just playing is kind of denigrated. It's not seen as productive. It's not seen as useful. And I think that's the root of where the stigma surrounding video games has come from. And now they've shown to be commercially successful, things that can make money, things that can be productive. That's kind of why maybe there's a bit more, um, you know, emphasis on them. Um, so I think as much as like games can be useful, games can have a social impact. I think actually giving people the luxury of like having something cool to do in their leisure time, like that's a big social impact. Like people can have fun, people can de-stress, and I think that's just as important sometimes as making something that you know like is art, like says something. But you know, it can also be both which is cool. Very true, very true. Um, and so one of the things that you're that you're looking at is what you're calling the digital fantastic, which, you know, drills down more into what you've just been discussing. So could you tell us a little bit more about sure. what you mean by digital fantastic? Yeah, so that's kind of the concept that I'm fleshing out throughout the course of my research. And um, I obviously when, when you first start your research project, you don't really know necessarily. You have kind of your proposal, but you don't know where it's going to go. Um, and where it's gone for me is, I first thought I was studying fantasy video games, you know, like stuff with dragons and all that, <laughs> which is really cool. But then I realized actually what I was looking at was the relationship between the player and the game, whatever the content of the game it is. And the moments I focus on which are fantastic rather than fantasy are the moments when maybe you're so immersed in a game that just for a minute you forget that it's a game and you're maybe treating the characters as if they were people and thinking about like what that brings up with emotions and like really I'm studying vibes <laughs> digital vibes <laughs> but yeah it's, it's about the kind of the feelings and the almost like the feelings being the means for being immersed. It's because you, you feel something for those little pixels. It makes you feel like it's real. It makes you feel like it's important. And that's the bit that I'm interested in because I also think that it kind of touches on our relationship with technology anyway. And like the place of technology becoming so enmeshed in our lives. It's, you know, this mutually reinforcing relationship. It's not something that we have to be kind of afraid of. It can facilitate emotion it can facilitate connection mm -hmm. and i think that's yeah that's what i'm really excited about. i suspect we've all been there uh, you know you only have to play a few video games until you find the one that creeps into your subconscious and you end up waking up dreaming about it you know if i go way way back and i mean way back um the, when tetris came out on the game boy i would wake up dreaming about organizing shapes <laughs> No, seriously. That's a I thing, don't... though, isn't it? Isn't that called yeah. the Tetris effect? Where, like, oh, when you, you start look away. Think... Yeah, when yeah. you start thinking of, like, how to organise things in the same way that you'd organise, I think they're called Tetraminos, is the name of the blocks, I yeah. can't remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, it, it's not just Tetris, it, it's there are many video games where it creeps in until you are, you're either dreaming about it or you're doing something else, but your your mind's drifting back to, 
shooting somebody in the face with a fire arrow. <laughs> As you do. Um, As you do, yeah. Can I have something just following <laughs> off the back of that? Like, if it's not too personal, is there any of those kind of experiences that you can remember that you had that you would talk about? Like, you know, like a specific instance in a game where you ha had that for a moment, this is a reality that I'm part of sort of thing? Um, I guess, so what I'm really, really interested in is when games look like they're breaking. Mm -hmm. So right. the more meta kind of games. So for example, um, like I say, Undertale again, and Doki Doki, there's also a game called One Shot that does this as well. But when the game starts to mess with your software, right? It looks like it's crashing. It looks like it's glitching. It looks like it's actually intruding into your life because we're so used to the, these experiences being mediated by the technology that we've kind of we kind of think in a way that is very binary. Mm -hmm. So this is also being kind of um, chipped away at by VR and things like that. But our experiences of video games are mainly like uh, like off-screen real, on-screen not real. But the technology that you're using, like the physical state of your computer, that is a real thing. And the software looks like a real thing, right? So when the game starts messing with that, especially if you go in blind and you haven't had spoilers and you don't know, you think that maybe you were well, did. You think that your computer's crashing. You think that things have gone wrong, which makes it feel more plausible that the characters exist because they are messing with something that does exist that we think exists. So it just shows how flimsy the binary is between like the on and off screen world. And it's more like when you when you play a game and you get really immersed in it, it's not a case that you're kind of opting out of life or you're you're not doing something like you're experiencing like another mode of being through the technology and i think as technology becomes more and more developed that would be something that becomes more prominent for us in the future yeah i i mean i i grew up um pre-video games uh, kind of commonly in the home okay but I, I was a huge reader. I, I read a lot and it was mostly science fiction, fantasy, that kind of thing. And I would sit, you know, for weekends and most evenings buried in books. Uh, but it was only when we got uh, a games console and I would sit and play video games. Then my parents objected because apparently video games are somehow less, you know, culturally relevant than, than, uh, than books. Whereas the reality is you know, everything aspires to the state of art. Video games can be art as much as literature can be art. But we, we still have this conditioning that, that um, somehow losing yourself in a video game is different to losing yourself in a book. Despite the fact that within a game, the player has far, far more agency. And, you know, you, you're proactively, you know, making your way within this environment for whatever goal it is that you have. Um, and I think there are so many fantastically good, you know, soft skills and social skills that you can learn from video games. Uh, but again, we're, we're, we're not at the point where the sort of the, the majority of society is ready to accept that yet. Well, I think actually like um, casual games, mobile games, and like games like the, the Nintendo Wii, for example, yeah. I think that's done a lot to further the how people think about games differently 
um, because I think part of the moral panics, uh, so it, it happens all the time. So it happened with rock and roll, it happened with television, it happens with anything that young people like. That started to diminish when games are brought into the home as a family activity because, and on people's phones, like on a commute, you can pop your phone out and play a game. Um, and there's so many different kinds as well that it's parents or the older generations are understanding because they they can experience this with their children or like with younger people so i i think it is more of a case of like not understanding what they are but bringing them into a more casual space and making technology more accessible makes it something that we can include each other with each other with otherwise it just is a case of appearances versus what's going on so if you're kind of sitting up hold up in your room playing a video game it looks like you're on your own it looks like you're being antisocial mm -hmm. it looks like you know but actually there's there's so much going on and if more people understand that um so my my supervisor matt barr as well has got a really cool book out about how games develop graduate attributes which yes, I he, he promised me a copy. I, must uh, have I have one. It's signed. <laughs> Just to rub it in there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like book collection. <laughs> but yeah, that um, that's a really good uh, place to. So I think if you can't make a case for games being excellent for leisure time and leisure time being fantastic, then maybe look at the skills that are getting developed whilst you're playing these games skills that you might not even kind of know about um that's true it's like if nothing else leroy jenkins did display leadership <laughs> i don't know i don't know that. if leadership would be the word i'd use to describe leroy jenkins come on that was a total captain kirk moment it was a morale boost oh uh, yeah I'll, I'll give you that i mean i think it was a very scramble everyone has to go and quickly make up for the mistakes he's doing now leading from the front it, it's <laughs> God. So, when we, when we come to play away, Gabe, um, what you're you're there to talk about our interactions with with fictional characters, with NPCs, but but within a wider context, again, within in how it re, um, interacts with our or how it reflects on our social relationships. Is that right? Yeah. So, what I'm looking at is a term called a parasocial relationship or parasocial interaction, and that's something that's come out of media studies in the fifties. Um, and what that's about is how we interact with kind of characters on a screen. So it was developed during, you know, like personality shows and talk show hosts, like people would form attachments to these people because, you know, they were using direct address. They would like talk to the audience casually like a friend. Um, and with uh, video games, like this is maybe even beyond that because they can, the characters can actually answer you back depending on how they've been programmed to do so. Um, and so we're kind of almost like we can use these kinds of games as a means not to replace social interaction, but as a supplement to it. And there's been kind of research about how this has happened during in lockdown as well. Uh, there's like a really good paper about how people are using parasocial interaction, like uh, like watching their favorite Netflix shows and seeing their favorite characters to kind of balance out the kind of social deprivation they might feel. Um, so how my workshop is structured is I'll give a short talk about what that is. But then more importantly, after that short talk, we'll actually play a game together 
and think about how we feel about these characters um, and if you come along you can decide what we what we do and things like that um, and it's just really fun to kind of when you talk about these characters as well it's a really safe way of talking about what you think about things and other people in general because I mean you can't hurt them it, it looks like you can upset the characters but you can reload you can start again uh, so it's a nice kind of proxy as well for thinking about how we interact with each other and what kind of social exchanges mean to us in a in a wider context see that's interesting because it, you know the gaming sector the gaming audience is not necessarily known for its um its ability to empathise and sympathise with others. Um, and yet, so are we finding that, that NPCs are getting more sympathy in games than maybe other human characters? Are, yeah, are... so there was a real big thing with, you know, how streamers and YouTubers are treated. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if they didn't play like Undertale, which is one of my, it's the chapter I'm working on at the moment, which is why I'm going back to it. Um, but there's a kind of a certain way of playing the game. Uh, there's a way where you can be a pacifist, you can make friends with the monsters, and there's a, a, a the genocide route where you kill everything. And one of the, the people playing, well, a few of them wanted to play the, the route where you kill everyone because just to experience the game in a different way but um, his viewership basically were really outraged by that and were making moral judgments about the player because of the way they were playing the game. Whereas, although games can be informative about things, the stakes are different and it's important to remember that. And this is why um, some of the arguments about video games and violence don't quite work. It's because the consequences of doing something in the digital world, although you might have feelings from it, like it's totally different to going out into society and doing, committing awful things and doing awful acts. So sometimes people do forget like that there are different ways of playing games and it's, you know, there's, yeah, there's so many different ways of doing it and sometimes people forget and maybe take it out on the person playing, um, which is not great. No, I guess I'm, I'm really intrigued because, because I, I, end up talking to a lot of people and I talk to the media, I talk to government, public sector, you know, a lot of uh, different people in education from primary school upwards. And there, there's this tendency to, again, not just see video games as, as mere entertainment, but it's also categorising everybody who plays video games as childlike, childlike or maybe childish would be a better way of putting it. So. You still play video games in your 40s, 50s, 60s? What's wrong with you? You know, shouldn't you grow up and get a real job? I'm wondering if, if, if this is something that is imposed upon players by society. I think actually the stigma feels more pronounced than it really is. Mm -hmm. um, so when I've been talking to people, everyone feels like they are stereotyped. This the kind of perception of like what a gamer is. But actually the demographics for gamers are like very different to what they were. And most most people, I need to actually find the stats, but most people playing games like now are adults. So um, I think it's a case of maybe feeling like 
because of how the media used to be, it's easy to get over, overly sensitive about it. When actually most people, if you talk about video games, they're kind of they're kind of cool with it, or they've played them themselves, or they've played a mobile game. And I've actually met more people being a game studies researcher now that are like, oh, I'm not a real gamer. Like, oh, I play this, but I'm not a real gamer. I'm like, if you play a video game and you want to be a gamer, you're a gamer. But I'm very guilty of that as well because when I was younger like having a, a woman's body you get more judged and there'll be kind of some gatekeeping and people will want to quiz you like about the games you know that made me very self-conscious so when I first entered this, the game study space I kind of as a joke had all my usernames as oh I'm fake gamer game because then that way nobody could say that oh you don't know what you're talking about but I think really um we're kind of we're coming out of that now I like to think I like to think the perceptions are different and that we're using them as a way to connect to each other rather than a way to separate everyone and pigeonhole people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's total, oh, slight change of subject. Uh, you mentioned your blog earlier, uh, Digital Fantastic, and I've been reading through some of it. I have to admit, uh, I said I understood it, that'd be a massive overstatement, but I'm I'm making my way through it and try, like, you know, it's really interesting stuff. Um, but would you recommend reading through your blog before attending the talk or would you say that maybe it would be good additional reading if you were interested and wanted to go further? Yeah, I'd say that um, my blogs, I kind of do two very different things. So I do my research and that comes up in my blog. But I also um, am trying to be to give a bit more visibility for kind of mental health and mental illness and talk about that kind of thing. So at my uni at the moment, I've been doing kind of some mental health talks about helping people manage their mental health and things like that, because that's really important to me. So the blog is, is, um, is a bit more on that area, but also it's nice to talk about these things holistically because we have so many, you know, different faces that we show to people in professional environments and like in your personal life. And there's so much that we don't talk about. And I think it's actually really nice to, I'm in such a privileged position where I can talk about things that are important to me and I can, you know, like try and help students and try and give some kind of representation or visibility for issues that I care about. So yeah, it's a bit different <laughs> to the uh, to the to the talk. You can just come to the talk without any preparation because I'll be talking everyone through it anyway. And one of the things I'm, I'm wondering, Gabe, is um, are there opportunities for the for the industry to learn from from game studies? Because obviously, game studies is drawing upon the output of the industry. But are, are we starting to see developers, publishers, game creators? you know, pulling in game researchers in, in different ways? And, and have you had a chance to talk to any of the, the companies in Scotland? And if not, what would you, you know, who would you like to talk to and about what? Um, I guess um, what would be really cool uh, is to think about the skill set of the academic as well as the content, right? So when you do uh, criticism and analysis, um, I mean, it doesn't need to be just in the form of a review or an article after the game has come out, right? So I'm sure all the like developers do get nervous about what critics are going to say about their games. Um, what are their games saying about things, right? Because that's what we're trying to look at is these, these digital fantasy worlds that we construct, like what is that saying about our world in general? And some developers may 
just want to do their game for fun or they might have a message but actually if they kind of brought researchers in maybe to consult and to look at the games as they came along and to say oh this bit I'll change or that bit could use some adjusting that could be a really kind of um, interesting relationship um, because it's a different skill set perhaps to what their narrative writers have it's about looking at the thing and thinking about like what it's doing and maybe what could be changed but it also would require sensitivity on the part of the researcher as well to understand this like very complex process and understand also that you know developers generally like a lot of the time aren't working on their own and so it's thinking about the process as part of like the whole of the studio um mm-hmm. and how it's not just it it, it it is you know it is challenging to pick things apart and to critique things but also if we were working with each other to bear in mind that there's you know constraints to as to what people can do and to kind of respect it as a craft as well as just critiquing it i think that's important i think you're right to go back to your last point i think there is a growing acceptance that, that gaming can be more and that developers you know are no longer just looking at the the you know the the big dumb fun it's like the you know the Clearly, there's always going to be a space for that. But more and more um, game creators that I know are looking at a huge range of issues, you know, in terms of uh, not just accessibility and, and diversity and inclusion, but introducing topics that, that are so far out, sort of the, the traditional idea of gaming, that, you know, you, you would question, are they actually games at all? You know, so looking at areas such as childhood trauma, looking at areas such as personal relationships. So it's not just barrel-chested space marines and explosions. It's <laughs> a huge step forward. Um, maybe uh, maybe space marines with deep-seated childhood issues. <laughs> that could be a could be a new <laughs> I think that was the of the war, wasn't it? But yeah, like the industry is definitely moving towards that. Like games like uh, Hellblade: Senua's Sacrifice, just it couldn't have happened on the like PS2 generation. It just wouldn't have, because it wouldn't have been accepted as a video game back then. Whereas now, being able to say like we're gonna delve into mental well-being and what it's like to be in someone else's shoes is just it's just part of what the industry does now. Even like games like The Last of Us and Last of Us Part Two and stuff, that isn't something that could have been happening a few years ago. And I think the industry's maturing a lot and being a lot uh, and saying we can make games about these things and discuss more deep-seated topics. Yeah, like there's an amazing mobile game that I've been playing through called Bury Me My Love, which is about um, the journey. It's kind of an amalgamation of different stories um, from a journey uh, of a Syrian refugee. And it's like a real-time kind of uh, pseudo real-time game where you're getting messages from your your wife like over the phone, and you have to help them make decisions and things like that. And that's you know that that's dealing with some really really big stuff. Um, and yeah, I think I think the argument of what is a game and what isn't a game is probably a bit of a, a non-one that we're moving past in game studies, which is really good. You know we don't have to kind of keep being defensive and like trying to validate our space anymore because you know we have space like games take up space it's extremely important and very interesting yeah i think hopefully we can move away from feeling so you know defensive about being 
hard done by games. Well, you know, for the first 10, 15 years I, I worked in video games, my, my father kept asking me when I was going to get a real job. No! <laughs> so, and weirdly enough, it was, it was only when we got a Nintendo Wii and took it around and he actually tried Wii Sports. Uh, that he kind of went, oh, I get it. Cool. Uh, yeah, you know, it, and this is the thing, the, the industry is evolving incredibly quickly and, and more and more of the people who are coming through as, as creators, designers, developers, um, grew up with video games and, and are comfortable with the idea that it's, it's a simply another form of storytelling, of narrative, of, of expression. So I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that, that you're here and that game studies is such a an area of interest because I'm determined to drag you, kicking and screaming, hopefully not, but if necessary, um, into, into the industry more widely because I think there's an awful lot of people who would get real value out of hearing what you have to say. So we will be pushing people towards your workshop. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. And, and we'll um, be thinking about this. Um, yeah, if anyone's particularly interested in character design and things like that, um, because we're talking to NPCs and talking about NPCs yeah. and getting actual feedback from people as we play the game, um, maybe it could also give some insight into you know making your characters like really engaging, really cute, and lots of fun. <laughs> Gabe, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for coming on this afternoon. Thank you for talking to us and taking us through what is an absolutely fascinating area of the gaming ecosystem that I genuinely did not know nearly enough about. Uh, I'm going to have to remedy that. So. I would just like to say thank you very much and to the listeners and viewers and readers out there at Gabe's workshop Beyond Parasocial Interaction Speed Dating with Ghosts which is possibly the most awesome title in the entire festival it takes place from 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock GMT on Thursday the 25th of February and you can find tickets on the tinderboxcollective.org website and we shall look forward to seeing you there so Gabe Thank you very much indeed. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.